Good evening. My name is Paul Holden Graeber, and I am the director of Live from the New York Public Library. I think all of you by now know that my motto is to make the lions roar. I actually had occasion to do a variation on that on Monday when I interviewed Jay-Z. I could say that I was making the lions rap. Um, but in, in fact, tonight we'll just go back to our old motto and say that we'll make the lions roar. Um, another way of putting it is I try to make a heavy institution levitate. I've been here for many years now, and nobody has been able to answer this very simple question, which is how much does this library weigh? I would, I would love to know at some point, 52 million items later, just before coming um, on stage now, we had occasion to take uh, Siddhartha Mukherjee and Nicholas Wade down. You may or may not know, we have seven floor of books that go all the way under Bryant Park. It's rather mesmerizing. Someday you should, should ask for such a tour as well. When this book was brought to my attention uh, some months ago, um, Siddhartha Mukherjee's new book, The Emperor of All Maladies, A Biography of Cancer. Of course, at first I was wondering, my goodness, this is quite a, um, a difficult subject. And for that very reason, and because of how extraordinarily this book is written with such, such insight and grace, I felt that we had to present it. So I'm, I'm really delighted to have uh, Siddhartha Mukherjee here tonight. You will look at your menu of the last few events that are happening here at the library. I asked our designer to design a new kind of announcement. I said I want a new menu, and in fact, he gave me a menu. So you will see uh, that we have coming up on Monday Zadie Smith. I'll be interviewing Zadie Smith, and Derek Walcott will be uh, speaking about Hemingway in the Caribbean. Don't ask me what that means, but I heard about that today. And then we'll be ending the season with a tribute to the National Lampoon. I enjoy the, the movement from the beginning to the end. We started with an interview with Supreme Court Justice Stephen Breyer and end with the National Lampoon. To start again in January with a tribute uh, to Gypsy Rose Lee. You may or may not know that the library has Gypsy Rose Lee's archives. So come, please come for an evening of burlesque. I, I would like to encourage all of you to join the New York Public Library for just $40 a year. You become a friend of the New York Public Library, which gives you great discounts and also might even make you feel good. After the event, um, Siddhartha Mukherjee will be signing his book, uh, which is sold by our independent bookstore, which we love, both that it's independent and still a bookstore, 192 Books. Nicholas Wade is a scientific reporter, editor, and author who currently writes for the Science Times section of the New York Times. After working for both nature and science, Wade became a member of the editorial board of the New York Times in 1982, writing editorials on science, health, environment, and military technology. He was science editor of Times from 1990 to 1996 and has been a science reporter there since 1997. Wade is also of several books, of which the most recent is A Face Instinct, an account of how religious behavior evolved and why it endures. In conversation with him, or 
maybe Nicholas Wade will interview Siddhartha Mukherjee. I don't know if it will be more of an interview or more of a conversation. Siddhartha Mukherjee is a cancer physician and researcher at NYU Presbyterian Hospital and a professor of medicine at Columbia University. A Rhodes Scholar, he earned degrees from Stanford University, the University of Oxford, and, Harvard, and the Harvard Medical School. Mukherjee trained in cancer medicine at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute at, of Harvard Medical School and was on the staff of the Massachusetts General Hospital. His articles have appeared in Nature, New England Journal of Medicine, Neuron, Journal of Clinical Investigation, The New York Times, and The New Republic. His first book, which has come out just very recently and has gotten some extraordinary reviews, both in The New York Times and The New Yorker, is called The Emperor of All Maladies, A Biography of Cancer. Please welcome them both to the stage. forbidding subject to which he has uh, written a surprisingly uh, uh, upbeat and light-hearted um, book. Uh, and I'm going to start by asking him um, how it was he came uh, to, to, uh, to write this book and uh, why his, his duties as a doctor were, didn't take up enough of his time that he <laughs> needed, in addition to two small children, to take on the writing of a book as well. So first of all, Paul, thank you. This is an incredible forum. Um, and thank you for having both of us here. Um, and thank you, Nicholas, for, for doing this. Um, uh, the book, uh, I wrote this book, uh, you know, there was a, I, I, as a child I read this story uh, about Edmund Hillary, who said that when he was asked why he climbed Mount Everest, he said, I climbed it because I, it was there. Um, and uh, this book is not about climbing Mount Everest. It doesn't have <laughs> any of that uh, gravitas. But, but I wrote this book because it was not there. Um, it seemed to me that there was an incredible vacuum uh, in the uh, in scholarship, but also in the in the in the human history of this incredible elemental disease that was engulfing our lives, that is engulfing our lives today, engulfing our societies, has had a deep influence on our culture. And yet, if if you know, there are five thousand books on cancer, and yet there was not a single book which addressed uh, the, the history of this disease and its future, to some extent, in the way that I wanted it to be addressed and the way patients wanted it to be addressed. Um, so the book actually grew out of um, uh, a very small a question that a woman had asked me when I was a fellow in training, and she had had uh, abdominal cancer, and she had relapsed and had another remission and another relapse and so forth. She was on targeted therapies and new therapies. And then finally, she said, Sid, I'm willing to go on uh, with, with all of this, but I need to know what it is that I'm battling. Um, and that was a very humbling moment for me. And, and, and she was not the only person asking this question. I mean, patient after patient was asking variations of this question, what it is that I'm battling, what was its origin, where did it come from, what's happening to it, where, it's, where, where is it going, uh, what is its future? Um, and so therefore, I started writing this book, and, and then it, you know, grew into a 600-page answer to a question. So. Uh, well, I read the book with a great enjoyment, but I think it might be useful for the audience if you would give a, a, a quite brief summary of the book and, 
and then perhaps mention some of the themes you expect readers to take away from sure. it. Sure, sure. Um, the book uh, sort of, the, my, my book structurally has, um, is quite complex because it really has two or perhaps even three stories that thread through the book. Uh, one of the stories is, of course, the story of my own coming to age as an oncologist, as a, as a, as a cancer doctor in training who learns to deal with this as I said, this magisterial illness that's taking over the lives of my patients. So there's that one thread of that story. But then, but then intertwined in that story is, of course, the larger history of cancer. And so we begin this book um, with the story of Sidney Farber. Um, Sidney Farber, and I'll tell you why, why Sidney Farber became the, the thread that, that sort of stitches the book together. Um, Sidney Farber was born in 1903. He was a um, he was a pathologist. He trained at, at uh, he trained actually in uh, he trained in in Germany. Part part of the reason was that um, typically Jewish students were not allowed into Harvard Medical School um, and had a really tough time. So often they had to train in Germany, ironically, before they would come back uh, and complete their advanced training uh, um, in Boston or uh, New York. So Farber went to Germany, came back to Harvard, uh, was trained there, and stayed on as a pathologist. Um, and a pathologist, as, as you know, is, is in colloquial language, we call them doctors of the dead. So these are people typically, particularly in the 1950s and 1940s, are people who are essentially looking at tissues after children have died. He was a pediatric pathologist. He was looking at children after they had died. And so he had this tiny hospital, this tiny uh, chamber at the bottom of the hospital, a freezing series of icy corridors, and people would be wheeling in the kids who had died in the main wards, and he would perform, perform autopsies on these, on these children. Um, but Farber uh, had a hunger, and he was interested in, in treating patients. And so he began to wonder uh, what, how he could enter the world of clinical medicine, even as a pathologist. Um, and his, his key insight, which launches the book, is that he, through a series of collaborations, stumbles upon a chemical uh, which will, which will uh, turn off the growth of leukemic cells. Um, and so the book begins with that history. Um, from that point of time, from that moment, I will come back to Farber as we speak a little bit more because he's such a central character in this book. From that point of time, in fact, we leap back, uh, having just launched chemotherapy, we leap back to ask questions about what the origins of cancer were. Um, so here we are in 1950s, and then Farber, too, is at this moment in which he's trying to find out what the history is of this disease that he's first encountering, we leap back and ask the question, well, when does cancer arise? Uh, what was the first time we ever know its history? Um, and then we tread forward from uh, 2500 BC up through uh, the age uh, of early discoveries in cancer, most famously through Galen. Galen, uh, the, uh, the Greek physician who practiced among the Romans, who had this fantastical theory of cancer. He said cancer is... A, uh, an overabundance of black bile. Um, he, he characterized the body. He said, well, the body has four fluids which are kept in balance, uh, blood, uh, black bile, yellow bile, and phlegm. Um, and, and so Galen uh, assigned a disease to each one of these four fluids. Um, and, and cancer was the disease of the excess of black bile. It was black bile that was in overabundance and had boiled out. He Galen literally imagined them boiling out into tumors. So we go through Galen, the systemic theory of cancer, and then arrive at the age of, of surgery. 
the, the great 19th century era of surgery when surgeons using anesthesia and antisepsis are first uh, beginning to uh, take out cancer, excavate cancer literally from the body. Um, and we first learn the, the, the dictum which becomes a central, one of the central themes of the book, which is if something is good, then more of that something must be better. Um, and so 19th century surgeons then begin to not only excavate pieces of the body, but they wonder if, if since cancer still recurs, they, they invent larger and larger and more and more invasive dissections, launching the era of radical surgery, which remains with us until about 1950. And of course, now we're brought back to Farber again, to 1950. So um, I'm going to take a little break here, uh, and because what happens in the book next is about the politics of cancer. Um, and so we go now from, from Sidney Farber, who's just invented chemotherapy, and he hooks up with this, uh, with this incredibly dynamic woman, the socialite, uh, uh, a person who, who people, people often said of Mary Lasker, she's, they said, well, meeting Mary Lasker was like having yourself annihilated. Every resistance of your body would be annihilated. She would come into the room and she would say, you know, I'd like, uh, you, know, I'd like you to change everyone in the room around such that I would like you to reseat this auditorium and you'd have to do it because there was no answer. There was no no ever with Mary Lasker. Um, so there was Mary Lasker, and Mary Lasker became interested in finding uh, a solution to cancer. So she and Farber um, have, a, have a, a, about a three or four decade long collaboration um, which launches the war on cancer, uh, Nixon's war on cancer. Um, and so the book takes us through that collaboration. Again, we'll, that's a major theme in this book. How do you take science out of this 14-foot by 20-foot laboratory and make it into the, the so-called war on cancer? And from there, we move on from 1971. The book then moves on through the major discoveries of cancer biology from 1970 to 1990 and all the intense disappointments and finally asks the question, well, what happens next? So that's, that's a long answer to your question, but that's the, that's the arc of the book, and that's why this book is something that you can use as a doorstop. <laughs> no, it's a very good uh, summary of a, a 500-page book. Well, I th I'd like to ask you about uh, a, a tension that I um, perceived in the book between um, the generally sort of optimistic uh, tone of the writing yes. and uh, the appearance of these heroic figures, or these figures who are presented as heroic, like... Uh, Sidney Farber and, and Mary Lasker. Uh, and yet that seemed to me to contrast with the actually quite pessimistic conclusion that one would find at the end of most chapters, yes. saying, well, this didn't work and this caused a lot of misery. And I'd like um, for one of us to read one of these paragraphs, which I found the most uh, uh, depressing of all, which was <laughs> uh, you know, summarizing... You know, many decades of radical mastectomy. So Sid explains how the surgeons decided you know, that cutting once was okay and cutting twice was even better. So they had this really appalling uh, procedure of radical mastectomy, uh, which they put into place without asking themselves, well, does it actually work? Is it better than, than less aggressive courses of, of action? Uh, and as Sid explains, it was not. Are you going, or are I going to read this... Go ahead. Okay, so here, here is the, the summary of, of, uh, of 90 years of this horrendous operation between 1891 and 1981 in the nearly 100 years of the radical mastectomy. An estimated 500,000 women underwent the procedure to, quote, extirpate cancer. 
Many chose the procedure. Many were forced into it. Many others did not even realize that it was a choice. Many were permanently disfigured. Many perceived the surgery as a benediction. Many suffered its punishing penalties bravely, hoping that they had treated their cancer as aggressively and as definitively as possible. When radical surgery fell, an entire culture of surgery thus collapsed with it. The radical mastectomy is rarely, if ever, performed by surgeons today. So when you read paragraphs like that, you have to wonder, well, were we living in the dark ages? Why didn't someone blow the whistle sooner on the fact that this wasn't working? Well, so there are many questions in that, right, that, that question. One question is, what, what is the mechanism by which we ever gain knowledge in medicine? Um, there's, a, there's, a, there's a moment in the book in which we, we come upon that, uh, with, in the case of Carla, who threads the book. Um, the, the, the incredible irony in medicine, of course, is that it pretends to have certainty because every medical decision is about certainty. It is about telling someone, you know, let's do this and that because I expect this or that to occur. And yet, of course, it's a discipline fundamentally rooted in uncertainty. And so, so, so every measure of progress furrows its way through the lives and bodies of patients. That's the, that's, that's the, that's the sad story about medicine. And yet, of course, progress has to be made. If, if you don't go through the process, you never learn. I mean, if Halstead... Uh, who invented the radical mastectomy, uh, did not, ultimately, surgeons did not commit themselves to these trials. And, and the book, book tells us how difficult it was to get these trials up and running, how, how terrible. Surgeons essentially said, we know the procedure works. Why on earth should we try it? What, what are you trying to, trying to prove here? This is a procedure that works very well. Um, what, what's, the, what's, what's the knowledge that you're trying to get um, and, and, and even the word radical mastectomy, right? Even the word radical mastectomy is loaded because if, if you're a patient in 1948 and if someone comes to you and says, I'll give you a choice between a radical mastectomy and a non-radical procedure, you have cancer, what would you choose? Um, and so, so part of the story here is the tortuous quality of progress, but, imp but importantly and impressively, progress happens. And it happens through five steps forward, two steps back. So make no mistake, and, and as, you, as you point out, make no mistake that things are moving forward even, through, even as they're farrowing their way through the lives and bodies and, 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 and the psyches of patients. So, so I think that's what gave the book, for me, that's what gave the book a kind of a propulsion, which is how can you describe uncertainty and this sort of queasy quality of it, two steps forward, three steps back, five steps forward, four steps back, and yet convince yourself, and I am convinced, that, 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 that the whole field is slowly moving forward from, from out of the dark ages towards, towards a deeper understanding. Well, it seems to you one has a particularly uh, uh, inflammatory situation in all of medicine, but in cancer um, in particular, <clears throat> between um, patients who are desperate and will try anything. Right. And doctors who, with a sort of mixture of, of perhaps good and bad motives, you know, will also try anything. They, they, want, they want to help their patients. They're looking for medical glory, yeah. uh, a place in the history books. And, and this is a very dangerous combination because yeah. it leads to excesses of the kind you describe, both with 
radical surgery and with um, chemotherapy. Right. In retrospect, I think we would have said, if we could have advised those physicians yes. from our position of knowledge, we would have said, don't go down this path. You're much better off with palliative care. You don't have the knowledge or technology to do anything useful yes. except cause misery to your patients. And, and yet, because of this, because of the fact that both parties in a medical procedure want it to work and will try anything, we get led to excess. So my question would be, does, don't you think this is, this is still in operation right now? And how do we control it and be sure that we're not putting the public and patients through un unnecessary harmful procedures? Well, I mean, particularly in cancer, I think, you know, and, and this is why this becomes the subject of this book, particularly in cancer, you know, this metaphor, cancer is a metaphorical disease in, in, a, in, a, in a very deep way. Uh, and we talked a little bit about it. The word cancer comes from crab. Um, and the reason is, as the book will explain, the reason is that Hippocrates thought that cancer, he, he thought that these tumors which were sitting under the skin with blood vessels around them reminded him of a crab, uh, of a crab crawling under the skin and its peculiar natural movement. The, the reason I bring this up, of course, is that the metaphor of war um, very quickly permeated uh, cancer. Even long before the phrase the war on cancer uh, appeared famously in the New York Times um, in an advertisement that the Lascarites created, long, long before that, if you track back the history, the metaphor of war was already permeate, had already permeated cancer. Uh, uh, let me tell you a story which is illustrative, and, and, and I, I guess the long answer to your question is what, how this metaphor of war eventually collides with this idea that you have to do the most um, in, order to, in, order to do, in order to do the best by your patients, therefore leading to the invention of radical surgery and radical chemotherapy. But let's pause for a second at this metaphor of war. I don't know how many, you know, one of the things that I discovered in this book was, of course, that the very first chemotherapies came from war gases. Um, and it's a fact that's sort of lost uh, in, 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 in when, you know, when you go to a hospital and there's a, there's a sanitized cancer ward, even still today, uh, no one tells you that, in fact, ma'am or sir, that, that, that this drug that we're about to inject into your body is actually a chemical variant of war gas. Um, and the reason was because uh, during the bombings of, the, of Bari, for instance, the Bari Harbor, uh, pathologists discovered that war gases um, were able to decimate the white blood cells uh, and leave the rest of the body uh, injured but not decimated. And, and therefore, there was a, the, the idea that if you could use that war gas in a slightly different manner, you could kill malignant white blood cells and so forth. That's just one example of how literally uh, chemotherapy and anti-cancer therapy grows out of metaphors of war. Now, these metaphors, of course, then become very much part of the consciousness of the doctor and the patient. It's not just one, it, it, both doctors and patients want to fight the battle, right? And in that moment of fighting the war on cancer, fighting, battling your own body, of course, it's very hard to say, well, now let's stop, let's retreat the front, uh, let's move backwards. Um, and, and therefore, this, 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 this dense idea, of this dense metaphorical idea of fighting cancer still permeates our culture. And, you know, can we, can we move back from it? Yes, we have to some extent, I would say, um, even in the practice of oncology today, but it's really, really tough. Well, I, I just wonder if there are sort of present-day uh, examples that, um, you know, either now or in a, in a few decades, people might look back on and say, you know, we're still fighting a war in the wrong 
way. And for example, there, there, are, there are several screening procedures yes. um, that are, are sort of so marginally effective uh, that you know, each year there's a new study saying that breast cancer, uh, screening for breast cancer, mammography is successful or it's not successful. This age should, group should do it, this age shouldn't. Um, for men, there's the, the, uh, the PSA test for prostate cancer. Um, you know, some studies say it's, it's marginally effective, some say it's marginally ineffective. Aren't these, aren't these examples of mass screening uh, ones where we have gone too far, where we'd be better off just waiting or not doing anything? Well, it depends. Uh, it depends on the kind of cancer. Uh, it really depends on which kind of cancer one is talking about. Um, the problem with screening, of course, is that I mean, there's been so much reported recently about mammography. So let's just talk about mammography. The problem with mammography, as we know, is that it's not a great tool, but unfortunately, it's probably the best tool we have right now for screening. Would would we can we invent better tools? Absolutely, we probably can invent better tools that are already coming up with different ways of visualizing. Uh, visualizing tumors in the breast, for instance. The, the, the fundamental problem with mammography is that, the, is that we need to find a way to restrict the population into a high-risk versus low-risk population. And, and that metric, how to find more intelligent ways of screening, have just not appeared so far. And that's been, that's been, a, that's been a constant uh, trope that runs through the book. Um, the other problem with mammography, actually another story that's told in the book, is... Um, is how difficult it was to run the trials that finally proved that mammograms saved lives. And, and one particular story strikes me as, as very moving, actually. Um, and the story happens in Canada, uh, a massive trial, massive, highly funded trial to prove whether mammograms save lives or not. Um, and there were manuals passed around asking people to, it was a protocol passed around in Canada saying, well, this is how you're supposed to do the trial. And one small little thing happened in the trial, which no one really noted, which is that it, the trial was randomized. So you'd have random assignment. So a woman would walk into the clinic and would be either randomly assigned to a, a non-mammographic screening or a mammographic screening. Perfectly fine way to do things. And the way that they decided to randomize is that they would write names alternately in a notebook. They would take a little notebook and say, well, if, you're, if your name is on one on the first line, you get the mammogram. If your name is in the second line, you don't get the mammogram and so forth. Seems like a reasonable way to randomize. It turned out that when they unveiled the randomization process in Canada, it was completely non-randomized in the sense that for some reason that they couldn't really figure out initially, women with high risk, high risk for breast cancer were put into the mammogram group and women with low risk for breast cancer were put into the non-mammogram group. And they, so they really started scratching their heads and they, and they did something very intelligent. They started asking the nurses, the secretaries, the assistants, well, how did you randomize? Um, and an amazing thing happens there. What happens is that when, you, when, you, when, you, when they went through some of these testimonials, they would say, well, you know, this woman said to me, you know, I have a high family history of breast cancer, and I felt really bad for her, and I thought I would put her in the mammogram group. Um, <laughs> and this basically was a, I think, uh, I don't remember the exact number, I think this was a 70,000 women study, a 70,000 women study, in which, which was essentially undone by compassion. Right? So here is, here's a study where you're trying to be as cold, as clinical as possible, and a tiny mistake was made. There was no reason that to randomize using, a, you know, using a, 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 a notebook. But just to give another story, some people said, well, I waited my turn in the notebook until I, I let other people pass by so that I would fall in the right line. 
so that I would be, I would be, you know, I would be screened by mammography. So once again, you know, number one, uh, the, the the road to hell is paved with with best intentions in in this case, um, and and that entire study had to be redone. So, just one more story from the book. So let me come back to this um, question of of the of optimism and the war and how it's going. Um, I was very struck that um, after I'd read sort of 300 pages or so of the book, you introduced the, the character of John Baylor, who's a very distinguished biostatistician. And Baylor, in response to all these sort of, quote, wars that were going on and, and the enormous funding boost that uh, the, the war on cancer uh, ob- obtained for cancer research, Baylor decided to look at the statistics and ask if the cancer rate in the US was going down. And he wrote a celebrated uh, uh, article, which um, Sid describes. And the answer was, no, the rate is not going down. If anything, it has increased. And we are not winning this war, he said. So then you read on another 50 pages or so. And, and, and Dr. Baylor appears again 10 years later, again with the same very gloomy message. I mean, it's slightly more nuanced this time, but still basically he's saying, uh, now this is statistics up to... This was 10 years ago, so right. after 97. That's right. So Baylor is still saying um, this, this war is not going well. So despite you know, the few rare cancers against which we've had uh, surprising successes and the improvements of, of, of mammography and surgery and chemotherapy and all the rest, nonetheless, none of, these, none of these procedures have actually made any difference to the bottom line as far as he can see. So I'd like to ask, is the picture still as gloomy? I couldn't, as far as I can see, Baylor's not updated his... Yes. Has anyone else done so? Yes. And if so, is the bottom line improving or not? So a uh, couple of thoughts. I, I, I call Baylor the nation's reminder-in-chief of cancer because every 10 years he comes out of Chicago and that's where he studies. Um, and he performs this, this kind of reminder act. He's sort of like the... He's the bean counter. He tells us he's, 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 he's the moral conscience of epidemiology. Um, I've met him. He's a wonderful, cantankerous, powerful, brilliant man. Um, but Baylor's analysis, um, very important analysis, and it really sort of in some ways threads the book. Let me tell you the bottom line, and I'll tell you a little bit more about it. The bottom line is that it is now quite clear that the... That the um, that the more cancer-specific mortality in the United States, having risen continuously for several decades, has plateaued and is finally turning around, um, and finally turning around by a significant, uh, a significant uh, number. Um, the most recent numbers I've seen is, you know, there are various ways you can compute this metric, um, but on the order of about, uh, people say, and as I said, there are various ways, about 200,000 to 500,000 lives saved uh, and by that I mean you can compute the number of lives that are potentially saved by the advances or changes in the uh, cancer-specific mortality. That's a big number. So, uh, so is this just people smoking less? So it is not just people smoking less, although that is a large contributor to it. Um, it also contains a little bit of contribution from screening, uh, mammography in particular. It does have a contribution from chemotherapy, actually. Uh, tamoxifen in particular for breast for estrogen receptor positive breast cancer, um, and chemotherapy, the kind of traditional chemotherapy, absolutely has also contributed to a uh, little bit of this, uh, this plateauing. So a combination, and, and I quote Donald Berry, the statistician, who's a very close colleague of Baylor's, who says, no one has labored in vain. Um, these, these, uh, these changes are not just uh, skimming 
these are deep, meaningful changes in lives, in, in, in lives saved. So just backtracking a little bit, Baylar. Um, uh, one very interesting thing that we find out about Baylar in this book is how tricky it is to measure progress in the war on cancer. So you might naively say, well, what, what is progress in the war, war on cancer? Well, you might say, well, I'm going to take, uh, I'm going to take, um, I'm going to measure for, let's say for breast cancer, I'm going to measure the fraction of women who are alive at five years, starting at 1970, comparing to 1990, and comparing to 2010. And let's say you find the fraction increases from 20% to 30% to 50%. So you go home happy, you're very happy because now you say, well, now you've made, you know, 20% of women were surviving at five years in 1970. That number is 50% now, that must be in progress. The problem, of course, as, as you know very well, is that screening has occurred. And so what might have happened, really, is that you sh really shifted the diagnosis time of a woman backwards, such that instead of being diagnosed in, in, instead of being diagnosed when she was 65 years old, she's now being diagnosed when she was 55 years old, and, and she seems to survive an additional 10 years, but in fact, all that you've really done is move the clock of diagnosis backwards. I, I don't know if that fully, you know, if that, if that's obvious. Now, that is, an in, that is an incredibly tricky problem because now you have to take that problem and multiply it by every kind of cancer, right? And you have to then find a mechanism to analyze every kind of cancer, then ask the question, well, you know, now is there increased survival? So, so that's one problem. And then the second problem, just as equally tricky, very interesting problem too, which is that the American population, like any population, is aging overall. And cancer is an age-related disease. So the population in 1990 is different from the population in 1970. The population in 2010 is different from the population in 1970. So how do you then, how do you then compute? And what Baylar does is something very ingenious. He essentially, he ignores this idea of, of survival. He says, I'm not interested in survival percentages because that's going to be a sloppy metric. But what he does is, he says, I will only take cancer mortality people who have died of cancer regardless of when they were diagnosed. I'll take only people who died of cancer. That's one innovation. The second innovation that he, that, he, that he makes is that he finds a mechanism to statistically shrink all these populations such that they become identical. So now you're identically comparing 1970, 1990, and 2010. Again, let me emphasize, this is a very complicated process, but if you do all of this, and if you do it accurately, you come upon these curves, and these curves very clearly tell the message that the war on cancer was not, is not a dud, um, that there has been progress made, and it's continuing to be made. There's been a decline, I think, for about 10 straight years uh, of that upswing. Well, one of the um, uh, uh, more successful uh, approaches to cancer we've uh, had has been with um, a disease called uh, uh, chronic myelogenous leukemia, and for which we have a very specific um, drug called um, Gleevec, um, so I wonder if you'd like to, um, to tell the story of, of Gleevec because I want to make a, a point about it, but sure. I'll have you tell the story okay, first. Okay, fine. So the story is in the book. It's sort of the late part of the book. Uh, it's in a chapter called, uh, or in a section called The Fruits of Our Long Endeavors. This is a, uh, a, a letter that Mike Gorman wrote to Mary Lasker. The chapter is titled after that in which he says, Mary Lasker dies um, late in the book. And just before she dies, or soon before she dies, Mike Gorman writes, write, writes her a very moving letter saying, uh, now at last we're seeing the fruits of our long endeavors. Um, j just to remind us how tragic that was, this is a woman essentially who had to wait from 1970 to 1990 before she could see the fruits of her long endeavors. You know, 
while she was waiting for all of this, having put all this energy into the project. Meanwhile, everyone was saying the war on cancer is a complete failure, it is a disaster, et cetera, et cetera. And Mary Lasker really retreated back um, and took herself out of these uh, sidelines and then until, as I said, the, the, the turnabout began. So, so the story of Gleevec, um, fascinating story. Um, so um, Brian Drucker uh, was a young fellow, uh, recently finished his fellowship in the 1980s uh, at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, um, was looking for a project. And here he had a leukemia, chronic myelogenous leukemia, which was lethal. Its only uh, therapy was uh, a variation of a, of a drug that would cause all sorts of awful side effects um, and was barely effective, essentially. And then um, patients would die. And the other possibility was to do a bone marrow transplantation and had awful side effects. And it was successful, but in a limited number of cases. So that's the background of this, uh, of this leukemia, chronic myelogenous leukemia. So um, uh, far away, in, in, in a company that eventually would become Novartis, uh, a completely separate group of chemists was trying to find drugs that, would, um, that could change uh, certain family of proteins which are, are important in heart disease. So they were trying to find, actually they were find, trying to find clot busters among other things. They were finding various drugs to, to uh, thin the blood and change the way heart disease uh, was managed. Um, and they had one very critical insight and that is that this family of proteins that they were trying to target with this, uh, with this group of chemicals um, happens to have, th there is one chemical that will actually target it and C bacteria, for some reason, make a poison that will kill this, this, this family of proteins. So these chemists sitting in, in, in Basel in Switzerland were taking this very primeval molecule that they'd extracted from C bacteria, a, a terrible poison actually, a, a terrible poison, and they were trying to make little variants. It was like playing merry-go-rounds. They were trying to make little molecular variants around this bacterial poison, trying to see, well, what will hit only some of these proteins and not others, such that they could not kill a patient, but only affect the heart, heart cells. So in the process of doing this, um, they found one molecule that would affect one protein. But of course, unfortunately, this protein didn't, wasn't very active in, in the heart. So they had essentially abandoned this project. But Drucker, uh, who, was a, who was an oncologist, figured out that a cousin, that same protein, was active in chronic myelogenous leukemia. And so he called up, there was a, the, he call, essentially called up these chemists in Basel and said, well, you've got this freezer full of useless chemicals, and I've got this ward full of dying patients. Could we not find a way to get these chemicals into these patients? Because you haven't found your drug, but maybe somewhere in that big freezer is lurking the drug that we really need for these patients. Um, and it turns out that one of those drugs is an exquisite poison to the gene that drives chronic, to the protein that drives chronic myelogenous leukemia. That protein happens to be called BCR-ABLE. And there's a very beautiful phrase in the book, uh, a chemist describe it. Chemists are incredible poets. He says, um, Gleevec was like driving an arrow into the heart of BCR-ABLE uh, because he crystallized it. He crystallized the protein and he could see that the, 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 the drug sort of sitting in the heart of the protein, this protein that drives this leukemia. And so, and, and Drucker told me, he was interviewed in this book, Drucker tells me that the first time he introduced this drug into patients, he thought they were going to die because there's no way to know whether this would only poison that one protein or it would poison the rest of the body, you don't know. So he sat, he said he has this very, he has this very wonderful memory, he says he sat by the bedside of the first patient, uh, it was a, he told he was a train conductor um, from Seattle 
who was terribly ill, um, and, and Drucker sat by his bedside, giving him, inching up dose by dose. So he gave him 25 milligrams and waited and said, well, okay, he survived. I'm going to now try 50 milligrams. And he crept up dose by dose by dose. And by the end of the day, the man was still alive. And of course, a week later, he had gone into the most profound remission ever in the history of CML. Um, so, and then subsequently, this drug has been now, has become the exemplar of, um, of a new kind of cancer medicine. Um, and, uh, you know, that, that's the story of Gleevec. So, uh, the background. I, and let me add a few details so I can make my point. And the, the story starts even earlier, as you describe yes. in your book. It starts, I think, in 1962 with the first observation that um, people with leukemia had a very um, curious chromosome. Um, it's called the Philadelphia chromosome, which um, consisted, they worked out of, of one protein, that had, one chromosome that had got broken and then it had been knitted back in the wrong place to, instead of to its other half, it'd be knitted back in, uh, to another um, chromosome, making a very odd-shaped um, structure that you could see on the microscope. And, and this, this wrong joining, in fact, fuses these two genes, the, the BCR gene and the ABLE gene together, in a way that cuts off a vital part that the cell uses to restrain this, this protein. Uh, so... So that research, sort yes. of, and everything that Sid and I have been describing to you took place over about sort of 50 years Absolutely, yeah. and resulted in this very precise therapy, which itself is not perfect because people, unfortunately, after these uh, miraculous remissions, do then become resistant to Gleevec. But, but we understand this cancer so well that we now have several backup chemicals um, that... that that also hit the cancer. So for these uh, patients, it's not a very common disease. In fact, it's so rare a disease that Novartis originally didn't want to uh, uh, put money into, into this um, drug. But for these, these this small number of patients, we've got a really good solution. Can, can I hold you for one second about that? Because it's interesting. So, you know, uh, <laughs> the, 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 we I sort of talked about this with Brian Drucker. So, you know, what's interesting about Gleevec is that, and this is, this is in general an interesting epidemiological observation. So there are small numbers of patients. But if you give, if they're on Gleevec, of course, their lifespan increases. And therefore, the prevalence of patients increases in the population. So, in fact, there was a time when you could rarely see a patient with CML because they were dying so quickly that, you know, they would, meet, they, they would be dead in three or four years with a rapidly accelerating leukemia. It's called chronic, but it's chronic only by the standards of leukemia. Um, which is a very, very rapidly escalating disease. Um, and then, slowly, as Gleevec came into the world, I mean, Drucker describes this, you'd all of a sudden start hearing of patients, you know, I have chronic myelogenous leukemia, or I have chronic, you know, my, my, my grandfather has chronic myelogenous leukemia, my neighbor. And it's because essentially what's happening is these patients are living longer and longer, and the prevalence is rising. And what's amazing about the prevalence is that prevalence is estimated to rise to about 250,000 patients uh, in the world. So essentially, th there's a metric that says that each one of us knows about 1,000 people. Essentially, within a couple of years, every one of us in this room will have one person in their social network who is being kept alive by a new generation molecularly targeted cancer drug. So, you know, that's a change. Well, wouldn't you agree that there's, there's quite a big contrast in, 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 in 
two approaches that you, you describe a lot in your book. And one approach is the sort of brute force approach of radical, uh, radical surgery, uh, uh, very high-dose toxic chemotherapy. The other approach uh, sort of starts very small, looks at, looks at the, the cancer cell in a very fundamental way, and, and produces much more satisfactory um, cures. So does this tell us anything about research policy I mean, or, or, or the practice of medicine? Doesn't it perhaps tell us that you're more successful sort of holding off on, on, on sort of brute force approaches that you don't really understand? You're better waiting till you really understand the system at a fundamental level? Well, I think the sad story there, and, and which is also a very deep tension in the book, is you cannot tell a patient, hold off, wait, I'll get back to you in five years when I know the solution to, to, you know, to breast cancer. You, you can't go, and go to someone and say, well, let me go back, take your problem to the laboratory. Um, I mean, of course, this is happening. Scientists are doing this actively while this process is happening. But, but as an oncologist, as someone taking care as a doctor, you can't go and tell a patient, hold on for five years, I'll get back to you, you know, stay on the line, um, because that's not how medicine works. There's, a, there's an urgency, there's a potency, there's a, there's, a, there's a propulsion in medicine that needs to be answered now. Um, and so part of the tension, of course, is absolutely, you know, figuring out the, the molecular mechanism of the cancer cell would eventually become the fruits of long endeavors in this book. And yet, for patients who were in the 1960s and 1970s, there was no other option but cisplatin, or, which is, by the way, a remarkably effective drug in some kinds of cancer, um, or you know, injecting chemical variants of war gases um, you know, and, and doing so by, 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 by brute force, as you describe it. Let, let me ask you about... Um, well, no, I'll, I'll make one more point on this issue. I mean, being, a, being an oncologist must, must be a terribly difficult job with many very difficult decisions. I think you refer to it in your book as a, as a, dismal, as a, as a dismal discipline. Yes, uh, but it can be. <laughs> I mean, I was reading today of, of how many people are still undergoing chemotherapy on the last days of their life. Yes. A very high percentage. Yes. Now, I know you can never, no physician can ever predict when a patient will die. Yeah. But it seems to me an absurd situation that people should be uh, 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 submitted to these very fierce treatments when A, they are hopeless, and B, the patients have a finite amount of time yes. to live. So you have a very moving chapter where you describe the growth of the hospice uh, uh, movement and yeah. Cicely Saunders. Shouldn't, shouldn't doctors, shouldn't oncologists be more aware of the fact that, that surely their right time comes to say, now you should go home or, or to a hospice and, and not submit yourself to these fierce treatments? Well, absolutely. And, and, and make no mistake about it, the invention of the hospice system was the invention of a radical new kind of technology. Um, it is, I think it, it's as much, as much technology um, and as much, as much it was a product of as much intellectual depth and... Um, and, 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 uh, and thinking outside the box as the invention of Gleevec, to some extent. Um, and I actually make this point in the book to remind us that, 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 there is nothing, that, that, that there's nothing fluffy about palliative care. It's actually the most difficult kind of care 
that oncologists and actually experts in palliative care nurses provide uh, to patients. The, the, the story is incredible. The story, which, 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 which you know, I, I got the story from looking through Cecily Saunders' papers, um, is, um, is uh, Cecily Saunders was uh, a British nurse. She trained um, as a nurse, and then in the middle of her uh, life, actually decided to retrain as a physician because she, she, this was the time when it was very hard to, to make, to be a, a, a decision maker as a nurse, um, in particular in Britain. And um, she had tended to uh, a man, uh, a man from Poland, who was dying of cancer. Um, and, and instead of going through these surgeries and chemotherapies, the man had, in collaboration with Cecily Saunders, had decided to opt for palliative care. And the man had left her 500 pounds um, and, 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 a little, and a letter which said, uh, I want to be a window in your home. Um, and that was his, his last wish. He said, take these 500 pounds and make me a window in your home. Um, and for Cecily Saunders, that phrase took on uh, an, an, a, a kind of inc incredibly amazing meaning because she then went into the wards in, in England, typically in the East, she describes them in the East End, where these cancer patients were essentially uh, pushed aside to windowless rooms. There was, no, you know, there was no place for them. They had become the pariahs of oncology. They had become the, 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 rhetoric, of, the rhetoric of progress. Was, didn't fit them, clearly. They were not making progress. Um, and the, the, in fact, I very self-consciously called, there's a middle section of the book, which is probably one of the largest sections of the book. I quote uh, one of these women who said, who said to her doctor, it's a chilling quote, she said, will you throw me out if I don't get better? Um, uh, she says, uh, at a time, because if, if I don't get better, then I'm not meeting your expectations in the so-called war on cancer. Will you now remove me from the wards? And so Saunders, Cecily Saunders, says to herself, well, wait a second, what I will do is that if oncologists cannot fit these patients into their rhetoric of, of progress, then I will physically remove the dying from the wards. I will take them to a different place. And she did so by, by inventing the hospice system. She called it, um, she, you know, she, 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 she coined the term palliative care. Um, and, and there's a lovely line that I quote from, a lovely paragraph that I quote from her in the book, which says, um, this is, palliative care is not the negative of treatment. It's not as if, it's not the anti-matter to the matter of, 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 of therapy. But in fact, it is part of treating patients. Um, and if you don't learn it, then you will not learn something about cancer. And so, I, I, as I said, I made a, a very concerted effort to put it right bang in the middle of the book just to, and, and named it, actually the, the major section of the book after it, just to remind us of the role that has played in this, in this incredible history. So, and I often tell people, palliative care is as much an invention as Gleevec, and make no mistake about it. I was um, uh, struck by a, a, a passage at the end of the book where you mention a, a, a discovery that was probably being made as, as, as you, near the end of the writing, about um, the, the theory of, of cancer stem cells. So this is the theory that, um, uh, that just as each organ in the body has a sort of dedicated population of stem cells that sort of throw off the mature cells of which the tissue is made, that maybe this is true of cancer as well. And if so, it has a rather important implication, which is that, uh, that most chemo chemotherapeutic drugs are designed to target the mature cells. So if, in fact, the cancer is being caused by the stem cells, which are quite different in nature, then all chemotherapy has been 
targeted at the wrong place. And now this, this theory is still sort of being tested and may be true or not true or sort of partially true. But, but when someone comes up with a theory like that, I implying that you know, the previous 100 years worth of research has been focused on the wrong target, you, you begin to see how very little we still know about this disease. Yes, absolutely. And, and you know, the cancer stem cell theory, I, I, I've written about it, it's, it's in the book, um, is really a kind of evolving frontier. We, we know so little about it. But if it's true, it really means revisiting much of what we know about what cancer is. Um, and uh, one feature that emerges in the book, again, it's a, a kind of a metaphorical feature, a poetic feature, is that every time you go back to look at what cancer is, it turns out to become, it turns out to resemble normalcy more and more. So the resemblance between the development of normal organisms, normal organs, is being recapitulated in a very profound sense in a cancer cell. Now, I think that tells us something relatively profound about, hu about the human body as a multicellular organism. It also tells you something profound about our mortality, um, I think. Um, it tells us something about the fact that the very genes that keep us going, uh, that allow us to uh, behave and live as multicellular organisms, distorted versions of those very genes can cause cancer. Or another way to put it is that the very processes, such as stem cells, that allow regeneration to occur when distorted can allow cancers to live and survive. And I think, of course, that is a scientific fact. But one of the things, I think, an important feature in the book is the link between science and, and metaphor, the link between science and, uh, and a more profound way of thinking about the human body is so close that y you can't think about cancer without very quickly thinking about this, this alternative way of thinking about cancer, which is, you know, is cancer the, 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 the night side of our life? You know, the book opens with Susan Sontag's quote, illness is the night side of life. And by the end, one of the, one of the questions that I raise in the book is, although there's a large heterogeneous body of diseases that we call cancer, they happen to share these incredible phenomena, could it be that cancer is the night side of our mortality? Um, and that's a question that's sort of raised in the book. And of course, that's a question that's far beyond this book and also far beyond cancer in itself. It's the, and the, the, the very um, aggressiveness of the cancer cell shows how robust our ordinary cells are. I mean, they've been evolving over three billion yes. years. They're very hardy creatures. And it's only because they're so well-behaved in our normal yes. body that we don't appreciate how, right. uh, how, how sort of vital and eager to survive they are. And, and of course, the, the, the important feature about all of this is that that's just, the, that's just scratching the surface, right? Outside the cancer cell sits the host, and the host has the immune system, uh, 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 blood vessels, uh, psyche, a personality, and so forth. And so uh, how does one take, how does one build complexity out of, out of this, out of simplicity? I mean, one very important feature in the book, and I think for me a very important feature in writing the book, was to remember at the same time to look at the microscopic um, the cancer cell, but, but also place it in the context of the macroscopic. Um, uh, one thing we talked about a little bit before was one really driving, propelling force in this book was to find the stories of patients. Um, who was patient zero uh, for X disease? Um, and I, one story that I, I know we talked briefly about is um, uh, I became... The book is dedicated to Robert Sandler, um, this child who lived from 1945 to 
1948. Um, and um, uh, I just wanted to tell you a story about how I came about Robert Sandler. Robert Sandler was one of the first children to be treated uh, with chemotherapy. He was one of Farber's first patients. Um, and when I was reading, when I was writing this book, I was trying to write about uh, who these patients were. But of course, I didn't know. There was no sign of Robert Sandler. He had died three and a half months after he'd first been detected to have acute lymphoblastic leukemia in Boston. And he, um, he uh, was, I knew he was from Boston. Uh, the only thing I knew about him is his name was R.S. Uh, that's it, because in the paper, it says R.S., um, nothing more. Um, so I became obsessed with finding R.S. Uh, finding R.S. became my, my mission in writing this book. And so I started sending out emails um, and various on listservs. I would post uh, stories saying, you know, if you, I knew he had a twin. I knew Robert Sandler had a twin, but I knew uh, nothing more about him. If he had a twin, I would say, um, contact me, uh, who died of leukemia in 1948, was treated in the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Contact me. Nothing. No replies. Uh, so I got kind of dejected, and I went, to my, uh, to, uh, went on vacation to my parents' house in India. And someone said to me, you know, there is a biographer of one of the colleagues of Sidney Farber's who lives a few doors down from you, um, in a few blocks down from me in my house, my parents' house. And so fine, I said, you know, what do I have to do? Why don't I go meet this biographer? So I go to meet this biographer. Now we're a thousand miles away from Boston. I go to this, meet this biographer and he says, well, you know, in 1960, I traveled to Sidney Farber's Institute um, and I have a roster of these patients he was treating. And in fact, I have these cuttings, I have these articles that I cut out from 1948. Uh, and and uh, in fact, while I'm at it, I have a picture of a boy <laughs> called Robert Sandler. Um, so, so, so there I was, a, a thousand miles away from, from Boston, where the story occurred, um, trying to become, becoming obsessed with finding Robert Sandler. And yet, of course, the the, the, through, through a mixture of peculiar serendipities, uh, I, I, I found the picture. And then I was just telling Paul, one nice thing about having libraries, and the reason that we love libraries, is that I could then go to the Boston Public Library and look through the records of deaths. Um, and I could look through the, the entries, because now I knew his mother's name. Uh, there's a picture of Robert Sandler in the book, incidentally, that same picture that I got uh, from the biographer, his mother's name. And I could find where he lived. And then 15 or 20 minutes later, having gone around the world, 15 or 20 minutes later, I could drive to the home where the first child with, with leukemia was treated, thereby launching this history. Um, so for me, that became a metaphor for writing the book, that there are ways in which you can write books about a disease, which I mean, we began this conversation about oncology being a dismal discipline, but its, it's history is, is furrowed, if you will, not only by, by dismal things that are done on human bodies, but by these incredible stories of hope which come and flicker away and then, and then sort of lead to these enormous things, including famously the war on cancer. Well, I've had great fun grilling um, Siddhartha um, without putting much of a dent in his basic optimism. I don't know if anyone else would like to share the <laughs> fun. Um, shall, shall we go to questions, Paul? Um, well, you sir, from the front. It's said that um, well, prostate cancer is, if not the most prevalent cancer in men, then the second most after lung cancer. And 
finasteride allegedly is a drug that will inhibit prostate cancer, and yet uh, it's just widely underutilized. That is, uh, if it does have that effect, I've read that. There's also another drug which will also inhibit the development of cancer, which is also not utilized. I don't know what it, I've forgotten what it is. Can you comment on why there is that underutilization? Well, the trouble is, I mean, Nicholas, you, the Times has covered this story. The trouble is that although, if I remember correctly, although finasteride does inhibit the growth of some prostate cancers, when prostate cancers do grow out of men in which finasteride has been used, they can be often highly resistant. So we don't know if we're doing good or harm in that situation. So we essentially need to run a large trial looking at mortality with the use of, of preventive, finasteride as a preventive. The problem is that trial has been plagued with this observation. Are we essentially, might we be actually doing more harm? Well, we don't know if it's breaking through or not. All we know is that there's, there, there are occasions or occurrences of resistant prostate cancers, in fact, more fatal, more uh, aggressive variants based on pathological uh, variants of prostate cancer that, that emerge in patients who've been treated with finasteride as preventive therapy. This goes back to the case of mam mammography. You know, how does one run a preventive trial in which carries deep risks? Uh, you know, does one, how does one even give informed consent to a, a preventive trial that carries a risk? There's a question here. Uh, did you ever find out anything about Robert Sandler's twin? And it's a lovely question. No, never found him. Uh, you know, there's a, there's a little, there's a website called, uh, he lives on Blue Hill Avenue. So I, I, as, as when I finished the book, I sort of wrote a little note to myself and a little sort of email saying, I finished this book. If you ever find it, if you ever come upon it, read it. Um, I have a picture of him. Actually, the, I have a picture of the twin as well. Um, to cut. if he didn't get this disease and he had the same identical genome to the twin, it would be interesting to hypothesize why one twin would succumb and the other didn't. Absolutely, yeah. Well, there are many such cases that there, there are many such cases of twins who do and don't develop, uh, you know, various forms of cancer, leukemia being one of them. Can but, you elaborate on why that, that could be? Well, the simplest reason that we know of so far is that cancer is a disease in which, uh, based on the interaction of, uh, of various, uh, based on the interaction of mutations in cells. So even though you have a, the same background genome, uh, mutations in one can cause cancer, the other genome might be normal, and therefore you could have identical genomes, but cancer evolves in one and not the other. In terms of your, your bit of, the, of that the cancer ones are, are perhaps a, a, a better version or a normal, uh, I've had the impression, and um, which I don't have any data to back up, but, uh, but other people have had the same impression that smart people get brain cancer at a higher rate than not smart people. Now, there's an obvious thing that you don't hear stories about, well, yes, and this person's brain was destroyed by cancer, but actually nobody really noticed because it wasn't very good to begin with. But it seems to fit with, you know, if the, if they're, if the people with the good brains had more, you know, regeneration, had more of the, you know, gleons growing in there or something like that. It, 
does this, um, and by the way, it's very, very hard to find something like that on Google because I haven't figured out the right words for it. But uh, so do you have any impression like that? I have no impression, but let me tell you a story which is kind of interesting. There, has, there was a massive trial in, in, in England and followed by in Scandinavia asking the questions, do cell phones cause brain cancer? Remember this trial? Very interesting story. So um, they, they actually did something very interesting. They said, well, uh, we'll ask whether you developed brain cancer on the left side of your brain and if you happen to use cell phones on the left side of your brain. And in fact, when they first ran this trial, the trial was strikingly positive. So people who used cancer, people who had cancer on the right side of their brain happened to use cell phones on the right side of their ear and therefore the association was so striking. But then the investigators did something interesting. They said, okay, well, let's ask those same people if they also happened to use cell phones on the left side of their brain. And what they found is that there was a decrease in people who had cancer on the right side of the brain with cell phone use on the left side. Now, what that really means, if you think about it, now, you know, the book goes through this, actually, if you think about it, what's actually happening is that they're recalling incorrectly. So what they're saying to themselves, every time they have, self, every time they have a brain, a patient has a brain cancer, for, for deep reasons, you know, for deeply moving reasons, they think, oh my God, I really use, I constantly use the right side of my, of my ear. That must be the link. And, and, and you know, it, it's of course moving and funny, but this is how, how, how deep epidemiological biases can run. So when they re-ran the trial uh, and they asked the question more accurately, it turned out there was no link, uh, at least with the cell phones that were in use right now. I can't comment on your question about smartness. Uh, I don't know if, if that exists or not, but I think I, should, we should, I have to move on to another question. Sorry about that. Yes. Which, oh, I'm sorry. You said something which made my heart jump. You said um, something about multicellularity, and then I started thinking about the evolutionary tree of life and about phylogeny. I was thinking, when did cancer evolve in the tree of life? Like, do sponges get cancer? Is it just a disease of multicellularity? Or are there some organisms that don't get cancer? And if they don't, then have people been doing research on um, using them as a paradigm for thinking about how to cure cancer. So that's a fascinating question. Uh, you know, when did, wh what's, the, what's the most primeval organism that gets, gets cancer? Um, well, so, uh, so it turns out that fish certainly get cancer. Um, Lens on, uh, among other people at Harvard, has launched this incredible um, series of experiments in which he is analyzing the growth of melanoma in fish. This is a disease that is very lethal and to have a simple animal model for this was a, was a real challenge for a long time. Um, the problem is, of course, as you move back further and further in evolutionary phylogeny, you start getting organisms that are what I would call loosely multicellular. By loosely multicellular, I mean that unlike the human body, in which every cell cooperates and collaborates to create the multicellular organism, there, by the time you get down very early in phy phylogeny, it's more like a republic, um, as it were. <laughs> these, these animals have cells that are very, uh, they're, they're, they're often self-preserving, and they've gotten together, as it were, to create an, an organism, uh, but, but really the, the organism is a loose confederation of many cells that happen to have come together because it gives them a certain series of evolution advantages. Now, somewhere between that phylogeny and the true multicellular organism is probably where cancer really begins to arise. Um, and it arises, again, because and this is, this, is what's, this is what's amazing about, about the development of cancer. If, if, a, if a tumor was so quick 
in evolutionary, uh, in, in the history of an organism, that it would instantly eliminate that organism, then it would immediately be selected against, right? Such a tumor or such a gene would never survive evolution. So a, a cancer has to live then in, in this peculiar situation in which it does not annihilate the host before the host's reproductive fitness is completed. So, but I, I mean that very loosely, of course. I mean that the genes that cause cancer cannot be so easily disruptable such that in, uh, such that in early embryonic biology, the, the embryo begins to explode with cancer. Such a gene will be immediately selected out. But the gene essentially may retain enough vulnerability that many years later, after the, uh, after the organism has reproduced, it can still have the capacity to break out into cancer. I don't know if that really answers your question. Yes, yeah. sorry. Sorry, I, I, we, we missed someone in the back. Uh, uh, can I, may I ask uh, one second? Sorry. I think you covered an enormous field of endeavor from discovery, early detection, to treatment, to targeted therapy, to palliative care. That's a, it's a wonderful exercise. I, I happen to have known Sidney Farber and have been yeah, in the field myself yeah, for 55 years. I, my, my take on, on his role in it is somewhat different than yours, but that's really not important. What is important is the number of people who were involved in the discoveries that brought us the cure of leukemia. And I think it's a, it's a, it's a lesson. Uh, Mr. Wade has covered this uh, from many different angles in medicine, but it takes so many different discoveries to, to bring us to a cure. And I think what's so encouraging to me is that now we have the genetic code, we know something about the genes, we know something about ability to target, find molecules that target specific genes that drive an arrow into the heart. I think that we're going to see rapid acceleration of this progress in, in, the, in the near future. So I, I'm very encouraged about that. I wanted to have a question. So I'd love you to have a question. <laughs> well, I think it does, uh, does agree with uh, the uh, prediction we just heard that there will be substantial progress in the past. And I, I think, would you agree <laughs> that one of the goals now of cancer therapy is to make it from an acute disease into a chronic disease, more or less as we're doing with AIDS? Yes, absolutely. Not to say that we shouldn't cure it altogether, yes. but if that's not possible. Absolutely. I think this is very much part of the, the evolving frontier of cancer. I mean, I would make the argument that for estrogen receptor-positive breast cancer, in some cases, it has become a somewhat chronic disease. Um, you know, that doesn't mean that we should, should stop focusing on curing um, uh, cancer, particularly uh, various forms that, that, uh, that have no, no curative uh, regimens right now. But it is true. And, and we, uh, if you're around in the world, culturally, you can sense it. And as I said to you, before, as we talked before, one of the results of the conversion of a disease from an acute, an acute disease to a chronic disease is that, ironically, its prevalence begins to increase in the world. And so the cultural shadow of cancer is, of course, increasing. It's dilating because it is becoming, in many cases, a chronic disease for many people. People are surviving 15, 20, 15, you know, 30 years. Um, I have a very, very interesting memory from my own residency days um, of, of the beginnings of the moment. I, I, I trained when the AIDS epidemic, particularly in America, was reaching its sort of tail, as it were, um, moving, of course, out, whirring out into a 
into a global epidemic of a completely different character. I remember the f I have a very vivid memory, I've actually written about it, I have a very vivid memory of the first patient with AIDS who came into the hospital with a complaint that had nothing to do with AIDS. He was having a myocardial infarction. He was having an MI, he was having a heart attack like any of us will at some point of time in our lives given the statistical prevalence of heart disease. For me, <laughs> for me that was actually a very moving, that was a very moving experience. To, to come to walk into, uh, into the bedside and record on a piece of paper. You know, when you, when you take a patient history, you have a little part that says past medical history, and you record other things that the patient also happens to have but are not particularly pertinent to this diagnosis. So I remember writing, you know, patient has presented, you know, a 60-year-old man presented with a, you know, heart attack, needs X, Y, or Z therapy. And I remember very vividly, poignantly, recording in his past medical history a history of HIV positivity since, nine, you know, since the last 10 years. Um, that was for me kind of a moment in which I sort of took a step back and said, something has changed so dynamically, so dramatically in, in, in this. Um, and you know, in the practice of oncology, you can do that with children with acute lymphoblastic leukemia. You can say, you know, here's a child with acute lymphoblastic leukemia cured in 1968, living, living in our midst. Um, very, very moving uh, moment. Yes. Uh, sorry, you had a question. We interrupted you. Um, thank, uh, thank you for all of this very important work. And um, I'm also harking back to, I, I heard Atul Gwande recently. On, there's some parallels between what you're both doing. And um, it gets me away from the diseases known uh, as cancer. Is there such a thing or should there be such a, a concept as the philosophy of cancer, the psychology of cancer? Is there some complementary other, you know, the mind-body connection element to this that um, uh, would be useful to humankind? Well, so again, variations of this question are very important um, and get asked all the time. You know, how, what role does the mind play in cancers? The, the, the quick, simple answer to the question is, well, when you're a patient and you're going through therapy, there is no more, there is no greater reservoir of resilience than your mind. So the people who say, well, the mind has nothing to do with cancer, that, that's absolutely wrong. We know that we, it does in this sense, in this sense that, you know, the, the way your psyche deals with illness is a profound um, and deep way uh, in which human beings mobilize. They, 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 they resurrect the deepest parts of their soul. Uh, Sontag talks about this several times in her book, um, Illnesses Metaphor. Um, now, the other question is, well, what does mind or stress have to do with the development of cancer? Uh, the quick answer to that question is we don't know yet. We've never done, we haven't done sophisticated enough studies to know. The single study, which I think is the most provocative study about this, is a recent study in which, um, and again, I think has very profound consequences, um, was a study in which mice um, were uh, either put in what was called a stimulated environment or a non-stimulated environment. And the, the development of tumors that were injected already in, in the mice was observed in the mice that were in this highly stimulated versus the non-stimulated environment. And very surprisingly, uh, the mice in the stimulated environment, surprisingly, maybe not for some other people, but experimentally very surprisingly, the mice in the stimulated environment developed cancer. At a, they developed smaller tumors, and often they actually developed no tumors. This is a very artificial model. Um, and in fact, the researchers could track back a single hormone, actually leptin, uh, the single hormone, and could make the argument that leptin was controlling 
whether the mice in the non-stimulated environment versus the stimulated environment had larger or smaller tumors. So I think it's opened up an enormous field. This is a very busy field right now, which is asking the kind of question, but it's asking it in, the experiment, in an experimental way, and that's very key, I think. It, one thing we've talked about so often is that in a field where there's so much hope and so much optimism, it's counterproductive very quickly. That, that hope and optimism becomes counterproductive. You get false hope and false optimism. And this has been a marker in the field of stress and cancer. This has, become, this, has become, this has plagued the field linking stress and cancer. But if you now go backwards and start unpacking it uh, with, with very carefully performed experiments, you can, you, can do, you can reinvent a field, and that's what's happening, I think, now with these experiments. Back there, and then we'll come over here. Um, you, you, you've written not just one, one book, but many books within a book. And one of the threads in the book that you haven't yet had a chance to, to touch on in this form is um, the intersection of politics and public policy with, um, with cancer research and cancer science and the ways in which these two very kind of different um, worlds exist in a kind of dialectic with, with one another. Um, if, um, if you were in a position to, you know, to do so um, almost kind of by fiat, how would, you, um, how would you think about reor uh, reorient reorienting or, um, or altering um, the sort of public policy framework that, that, um, that exists in a kind of conversation with, um, with cancer research? Well, that's a very important question and, of course, has to do with Mary Lasker's mission in some sense, right? Mary Lasker was this, was this force. She, she was the fiat. <laughs> and if you didn't believe it, you'd, you'd better believe it. Um, but... Uh, the question is, what happens now? What happens today? Um, and I think one of the things that the National Cancer Institute has begun to realize is that you, that, that you require the, the role of the translational scientist has become more important in cancer biology. There's now money being poured into creating a, a person who literally can move from the clinic to the laboratory um, and from the laboratory to the clinic to, to, to translate the incredible wealth of uh, knowledge that is coming out of the human genome and the cancer genome and various cancer scientific projects and accelerate the translation of those, uh, th that into uh, real medicines. The one big problem here is that the conversation that we have, the public conversation that we have with the pharmaceutical industry has broken down in a very fundamental sense. Um, I, I do think that there are it almost is, it's almost as if there are two pharmaceutical industries. There's a pharmaceutical industry that peddles drugs that are toxic, often, with, uh, uh, often hidden under bad data, and eventually sort of lives it with, it with, 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 with spasms of guilt, but lives for about five years until that secret is discovered, and essentially packs up its bags and leaves. That is a, that is a pharmaceutical industry. We've seen that pharmaceutical industry. We've seen that in Vioxx. We've seen that in various other drugs. Um, but there is another pharmaceutical industry which is responsible for the birth of Gleevec, as, 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 I, as I detail in the book, was responsible for the birth of Herceptin, um, was responsible for the birth of Tamoxifen, major, major changes in the way we treat uh, cancer patients, was the, was, was the basis of you know, the birth of uh, important palliative care medicines, um, which allow the anti-nausea medicines. So, how then does one reconcile these two pharmaceutical industries and reconcile their conversation with 
um, with scientists, with public policy, in a way that we can reject with some kind of specificity the pharmaceutical industry that is, that is perverted and ghoulish with the pharmaceutical industry that is inventive and resilient. And I think that is, is really the front of public policy, particularly for the evolution of therapy. Um, one last point, of course, is that there's a big chapter on prevent cancer prevention, and I think a major emphasis at the National Cancer Institute is to also reinvent the way we think about prevention, which has not been done for a while. Prevention, prevention research was based on a kind of epidemiological model, very powerful epidemiological model, which we talk about in the book, and that's been changed to a, a kind of a molecular model, a molecular way of thinking about prevention. And that, that will definitely change the way we think about cancer prevention. Hi, um, I just have a question. Um, I'm, I'm right here. Oh, um, later in the book, you talk about Queen Atosa of Persia, and I'm curious, um, I, I know that she was the first woman diagnosed with breast cancer, and I was just curious if you could talk a little bit more about why, um, what you sort of detail um, on her and, and why her story is important. So Atosa is the first woman that we know of who may have had a disease that might have been breast cancer. Uh, and the reason I say that with so many caveats is because, because the language doesn't have a word for cancer yet. So this is Herodotus writing in his histories. Um, and he describes this, uh, this case of a uh, queen, a Persian queen, um, who, um, be, who, be, who develops, as he puts it, a mass in her breast. Um, and instead of approaching her own physicians, she hides in shame. Of course, this becoming the, the theme that will run through the book. So she hides in shame until, and we're told that a Greek slave of hers named Demosides um, cures her, probably by, by cutting uh, out the tumor. Um, now, whether that was a tumor, whether that was an abscess, we don't know. The book acknowledges as such. But, but by many descriptions, many surgeons have really imagined that this was the first description of breast cancer. Um, the, the, the twist to the story, of course, is that Demosides was from Greece. He had been captured and brought to Persia. She was a Persian queen. And so then Atossa, having recovered from her surgery, asks her husband to, instead of invading Scythia, which is on the eastern side of the border, to invade Greece instead so that Demosides can be brought home. And, and, and in fact, this is true. This is, what, this is what this change from the eastern face of Persia to the western face launched the Greco-Persian Wars um, and, and therefore really ch radically changed the early history of the West. Um, so that's Queen Atossa. And I, I say in the book, cancer, even in its most clandestine form, managed to, manages to leave this indelible fingerprint on human civilization, a single case of cancer in 440 BC. One last point is that we return back to Atossa at the end of the book because Atossa becomes for us a way, a kind of a device to perform a thought experiment. And the thought experiment is, imagine Atossa as Cancer's Dorian Gray. So her illness is frozen in time, but she moves across time. So she returns back in 1609, in 1709, in 1809, in 1909, and so forth, all the way to 2009. And we ask the question, what has changed? What has changed in Atossa's history? And this goes back to Nicholas's question, you know, what is the arc of that history? And I think what we do find is that Atossa's diagnosis, her management, her prevention, her, uh, the medicines she's treated with, the, 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 the apparatus around her treatment, the psychological, the psychiatric care of her cancer changes radically over time. And it becomes, I think, a story of a thought experiment that allows us to understand what really has happened. Um, now, 
Does she survive longer? We don't know because you can't, this is a thought experiment. But I think, and I make this point in the book, reasonable people would say that for if she had estrogen receptor positive breast cancer, she probably has extended her survival between 10 to 20 years. Now that is meaningful. If she had pancreatic cancer, and here comes the chill, if she had pancreatic cancer, her prognosis from 1609 to 2009, if she had metastatic pancreatic cancer, which is not surgically amenable, her prognosis from 1609 to 2009 has not changed. So then that's the history. In the back over there, and then we'll come up in front. Like the business of cancer, so there's really no, I guess, from a business perspective, reason to cure it. What do you? I'm sure you've come across that too in your research. Well, I think it's I think it's a little bit nihilistic to say there's no business reason to cure cancer. Um, I think I think that would be that would be a, a strong statement to make about the. Sense perspective. You just talked about the apparatus and the medicine and the therapy and the all these businesses that would go out of business, all these people that would get unemployed if cancer was cured. Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, you know, you could say that. I think it's, I think that's, I think that's a, that's a, that, that, that pushes the nihilism too far for me. I think that's a particularly nihilistic way of looking about, uh, about the way this sort of apparatus works. I mean, if, fair enough. I mean, you know, if we cured all illnesses, medicine would go out of business and we'd all be happy. I would have no job and I would be happier for it. But, that is, that is not happening. And unfortunately, I think that, um, that even the best efforts to cure cancer, whether they were driven by, uh, by, by more perverse, um, perverse uh, uh, incentives, uh, have not worked out. So we are now stuck with, whether you like it or not, for some cancers, uh, cancer is a chronic disease, and we need to manage it. Now, I, I agree that you could imagine that there are perverted incentives there, I'm not the biggest fan of, of that way of looking at it. For me, particularly, it, 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 it deflates, uh, deflates what I do. I mean, Nicholas, wh what's your sense about, 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 you know, do you have a sense that, now you covered this area very, very, very much, you've covered it for many years, do you have a sense that there's been, that, that there, is a, there is a machinating process in the background here? Uh, a machinating process? You mean a conspiracy? A cons well, not a conspiracy. Well, yeah, exactly. Or, 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 I mean, is there a disincentive for a pharmaceutical industry to create uh, a curative therapy? Or is there a disincentive for a hospital or a doctor to find a curative therapy because then the so-called cancer world would collapse? Um, well, I don't think so. I, would, I think the incentives are the, are the opposite. I mean, we have a vigorous pharmaceutical industry in this country because competition is encouraged and because... You do make a successful drug, you hit the jackpot. And uh, you could argue that the Europeans have regulated their pharmaceutical industries sort of so tightly that they've stifled innovation. So, um, you know, our system th thrives on people seeking their self interest. Yes. There are, I mean, I mean, it's well known that there are certain ethnicities in the world that have a lower, that have a lower degree of heart disease because of their diet, such as the Mediterranean diet, or people who live in Japan, you know, who don't eat meat, they eat fish, 
And my naive question is, are there any ethnic groups in the world that have a lower incidence of cancer than other ethnic groups, which, I mean, and possibly the answer is yes or no, but if the answer is yes, then the next logical question would be, why? So the answer is yes, um, and, but it depends on what kind of cancer. That's the unfortunate piece of it. So it's not as if you, there are ethnic groups that are cancer immune, as it were. Um, it, there's a spectrum. Um, there is clearly an increased incidence among African Americans, for instance, of multiple myeloma, um, one, one, uh, one, one form of cancer. We don't know why. Um, the, the, the question you're asking is a very deep question about epidemiology. I mean, how do you then take that, that statistic and convert it into what the reason is, what's the, what's the background uh, behind it? And we don't know. Um, in some cases, we did know. Uh, there, was, um, there, there, there were increasing, there was, we know for instance, that the increased incidence of liver cancer in Asia likely has to do with hepatitis B virus. Um, so eliminating that virus, targeting that virus, and eliminating has led to a, a dramatic reduction of, of, of that disease. We do know that in certain parts of Japan, there was an endemic infection with a stomach bacterium. Um, by the way, there's a great story in the book uh, in which, um, in which the dis that discovery occurs, um, and, and, and the man, Barry Marshall, who subsequently won the Nobel Prize for the discovery, for the longest time, people said gastritis um, was because of stress. Um, and they would say, well, you've got, there's a, there's a line in which, in which he, he, he quotes someone saying, um, he, you, your doc, you go to the doctor and say, doctor, you know, I have this, this ulcer in my stomach, it's, uh, I have this uh, gastritis. And he would say, that's nothing, dear, it's just, you're just too much stress, take an anti-stress tablet. Um, it turned out, of course, that it was a bacteria. It's a bacteria called Helicobacter pylori, which causes this kind of inflammatory reaction in the stomach. But this was so hard to accept. This was so difficult to get people to accept that Barry Marshall, when he was dis discovering it, performed what I call the ultimate experiment. He took Helicobacter pylori, scraped it off a dish when no one was looking, and he swallowed it. Um, and he created, he recreated gastritis in his stomach. He could treat it with antibiotics. And essentially, he, pr he provided biopsies from his own stomach to prove that there was a direct link, the causal link between bacteria and, and, and stomach cancer, or stomach inflammation that leads to cancer. Now that said, no one does experiments as, as like the Australians do. Um, <laughs> so, um, and so that said, you know, but, but he really put, he put, he put that idea on the map. Um, and now there's an exploration about, uh, about you know, how to, how, to, how to tend to these various ethnic clusters. So some of them are bacterial, some of them are genetic, some of them are carcinogens that are unique to those, to those areas, and some of them are completely mysterious, and we don't know why. Do we have one last excellent question before I ask one? <laughs> Questions have all been excellent. Um, I'm just curious to know whether in this country, what is the current situation in this country in... Uh, for example, taking in consideration Eastern medicine approaches to cancer. And I know that Colombia, I work at Colombia, I know that Colombia has a program now on alternative yes. medicine. And I was wondering whether that was actually um, taken in account in the war in cancer. Because I don't believe that is a conspiracy, the, uh, you know, plot by the pharmaceutical companies, but I do believe that there may be a lot of products over the counter that in theory may be potential small molecules, yes. inhibitors, and yes. 
Absolutely. So, um, you know, as Barry Marshall proves, alternative medicine is alternative until it stops being that way. Uh, so so we, have to be, we have to be humble about what alternative medicine is. Um, and, of course, if you look back at the Gleevec story, right, the, 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 the drug Gleevec was, you might say the drug Gleevec was invented by Novartis and then, and then brought to its full being by Brian Drucker. But, in fact, its original variant was invented by a C bacterium, right? That's what, that's what the reality is. And if you look at our pharmacopoeia, a vast number of substances come from plants. Uh, plant medicines extracted in various forms form the, the molecular spine of our current pharmacopoeia. So, and there's no denying it. And where there is wealth, in, where there is wealth in, and evolutionary diversity, uh, particularly biodiversity, there is a place for plants, these plant medicines to be brought into the human pharmacopoeia. My only plea is the following. My only plea is, I think alternative medicine is incredible. But the ways that we test um, medicine in clinical trials has, has happens to have evolved very highly in, in this part of, of the world. Um, there, are other prob there are probably other ways of testing medicines that we don't know about, but this happens to be a relatively good way of testing medicine. So my only plea is, let's, let's find a way to bring these, molecules, these small molecules into the same kind of rigorous testing mechanism so that we don't fall plague to the very biases that we talked about that happen to have the problems in, uh, in, in cancer, in the history of cancer. One more eager yes. person there. Hi. It's on? Yes. I wanted to ask a quick two-part question. One, I've read that chemotherapy is most effective against certain kinds of cancers. Uh, testicular, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, and I forget the third. Yeah, um, and if that's the case, then how come the push for chemotherapy is so widespread? And my second part is, I also read that in Germany they do uh, chemo chemotherapy sensitivity tests. Yes. And um, how come we don't do that as much here? So the two-part question, number one is, how come chemotherapy is used in uh, other forms of cancer where it's less effective? The, answer, the quick answer is because there's nothing better that we have. Um, for, again, to return back to the case of breast cancer, although you know, we can use other examples here, chemotherapy applied after surgery for breast cancer saves lives. There is no doubt there have been multiple trials in multiple countries run. Um, now, does it cure breast cancer? It does not cure metastatic breast cancer. But this form of chemotherapy called adjuvant chemotherapy in breast cancer and several other forms of cancer saves, extends lives significantly. And in fact, one reason that this dip has occurred post, uh, post the 1980s or 1990s, there is a small contribution. If you measure it, there's a small contribution of chemotherapy in breast cancer to that. So let's not minimize that. And unfortunately, we don't have another uh, alternative. So the second part of the question is why don't we test... Um, Part of the reason, I think, is that um, we don't have the mechanisms that allow us to discriminate between what can and cannot work in the laboratory in the clinic. Even in Germany, when these tests are being run, I would say the, the tests are in their very crude infancy. And we've never done properly a kind of study that you're asking for, which is, could we ask the question in the most rigorous manner possible whether testing for a particular spectrum of drugs and then applying that drug to a patient will or will not help that patient extend survival. That's the kind of study that needs to be done. We haven't done it yet. So um, I have a, a two-part question. 
I, I didn't want you only to have a two-part question. So I have a two-part question, and it's not two parts, it's two questions, but I'll say they're two parts. <laughs> um, <clears throat> the, the first one has to do with a comment you made uh, very quickly en passant, but which is very important. You mentioned that chemists are poets. Um, and I, from my own past, I remember my father, who studied medicine, trying to teach me chemistry when I was failing terribly. And he was saying, the C loves the O. And he was making it very lovable and very poetic indeed. And so I'm interested in how you went about writing this book, because the subtitle is A Biography of Cancer. And indeed, uh, uh, cancer becomes a, a personage, a, a protagonist. And it's a book written, one would say, by, by a writer. And I'm, I'm quite struck by many of the metaphors you use and how you sat down and wrote the book, the, the very, the very um, daily work, when you found the time and how you went about writing it. The second question, which is totally unrelated really, is, um, comes from a quotation from Susan Sontag that you, 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 you uh, refer to her quite often. And you say, uh, you quote this passage from, uh, from one of her books, the purpose of my book, Susan Sontag wrote in the conclusion of illness as metaphor, is to calm the Im imagination, not to incite it. And I'm wondering if your project is in any way similar. Right. So those are uh, lovely questions to end this conversation with. Um, the, f the answer to the first question, uh, what, what went into writing the book? Um, so a little bit about my, my write, writing process. Uh, I, I said to you before, I, I wrote the book as an answer to a question, and that already gave it a certain kind of internal propulsion. I was answering a question, and therefore I had to start from the beginning and end at the end, I had a sense of what, uh, what was going on. Two important features. Number one is that when I wrote the book, um, I did not know whether Carla would live or die at the end of the book. Um, so it was, for me, um, a kind of a peculiar moment of writing because it was, it was like writing a novel in which, or a, actually even more frighteningly, writing a work of nonfiction in which I literally did not know the end. If Carla had died at the end, she does not. Uh, if Carla had died at the end, this book would end on a very different note. Um, and, and so, you know, one of, the, one of the most complex things about the book was I was, I was driving without a destination uh, while writing this book. Um, so I, I took that, and, and, and rather than saying to myself, well, here's the end, here's the end I'm driving towards, I said, instead, I'm going to concentrate very deeply on process uh, because, I, because there was no destination. Um, and, and, and what I would do, essentially, is I would write in very short bursts, five, ten minutes squeezed here and there. I was often keeping a diary because I was writing while I came back um, from work. So I would come back from work and I would think about the day and I would keep a little diary and say, well, here's something that can enter the book. And then I would forget about it and then it would enter again in a different way. And I think that allowed me to, to deal with, the, I mean, this manuscript was about three times its length. Um, uh, Nan Graham, who edited, had to wrestle with, with uh, a manuscript that was literally three times its length. There are many people who don't get into the book because it's, you know, no one would read a, we can barely, you know, no one would read a 1800 page book on cancer, but nonetheless. So, so that was the, pr that was very much the process. And I, 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 I told this to Chip McGrath, who came, uh, uh, to, do a, to do a lovely review of the book uh, from the Times, I said I mastered the idea of, of profound indiscipline. 
what I would do is rather than say I'm going to work from 9 a.m. to 10 a.m. on the book and shut everything out, I would rather work in five minutes bursts. I would say I'm going to write from 9 to 9.05 and then stop. And I'm going to start at, you know, you know 10.15 and write till 10.30. Um, so that was one feature. So, and the third feature, and, uh, and those are the three salient features in terms of what I remember about writing the book. The third feature was that I, I wrote in a very linear manner. Um, and by that I meant that I started at the beginning and I ended at the end. I didn't, many writers told me, well, it's, you know, we work non-linearly. We, we put in chapters later, come back, switch them around, etc., etc. It didn't work for me. I can't write like that. So I, I'm a profoundly linear writer. So I write, start in the beginning. The advantage, because everything has a little advantage, the advantage of that was when I would get stuck, I would become obsessed with projects. So when I got stuck with the Robert Sandler's story, it seemed to me that if I didn't find Robert Sandler, this book could not be written, <laughs> right? Because I was so stuck, because here he was, I was at Sydney Farmer's Clinic in 1948, and I think in, in a very peculiar way, uh, and for me, a, a very heartfelt way, it, it allowed me to discover things that I hadn't discovered before, and I would never discover them if I didn't get stuck in this way. And so then I would move on, and then I said to myself, well, I've got to find the first survivor of childhood leukemia. Now that I've found the first child who had leukemia, now I've got to find the first long-term survivor of childhood leukemia. So I'm going to tell you the story very quickly. But, so I, again, went back. I was looking all around to find the first survivor of... Because this was the, this was the beacon for me, this man or woman who had survived from 1960s, these trials from 1960s, would become, therefore, the, em the emblem of what was successful and not successful on the war on, war on cancer. Um, and then I was looking on the, I was buying a, a textbook on cancer on Amazon. And in the reviews of the textbook, someone had written, a woman had written um, something, something, something. I, am, you know, I, I, had, I had leukemia in 1964. Um, and I, I, I thought this book was very nicely written or something. And because I was so habituated to looking for those names and those numbers, I said, wait a second, 1964, the woman is now, you know, these many years old. She has got to be a long-term survivor of chemotherapy. And there was a little address that said on the side, she had a little Facebook address or something. So I called her up and I said, would you, can I come see you? And so I drove out to, to Maine. Actually, I took a bus out because we were in somewhere far away. Uh, we, I took a bus out and then a car. And then finally, I have this very vivid memory of arriving at her door. And she was like, why are you, why, why are you here? <laughs> you know? and, and, but I couldn't explain to her. I said, you know, if you, if you weren't there, if I hadn't found you, I wouldn't be able to write this book, you see? <laughs> you know, this was, you are my, you are my, you are my book. I mean, you're the, and so, so then she brings out these pictures from 1964, she brings us these pictures of herself as a preteen um, in the Boston ward. And we, we, we tell the story, this was a time when there, was no, there were no antipsychotic drugs. And she was treated with the highest doses of steroids. And she went crazy. And they had nothing to do, and the only thing they could do is restrain her. So they, um, and we go through the story in the book, they tied her up so that they could give her chemotherapy. Um, and she survives. You, take, you make of that what you will. Um, so that's the process of writing the book. Um, now, and the last question you said was, remind me, the... the I'll, I'll quote you back the line. Oh, yes, yes, about inciting the imagination. Yes, of course, yes. This is a lovely line from Susan Sontag who says, um, my purpose was not to inflame imagination, but rather to calm it. I felt if, if this book is successful, 
it will demystify one of the fundamental mysteries of illness that happens to be a part of our times. I think cancer in some ways is a defining plague of our generation, just the way that uh, tuberculosis has been for a prior generation, just the way that actually the plague was for a prior generation, and AIDS uh, famously was for another generation, it's becoming for another generation. And so I felt as if, if this book is successful, it, it will succeed if it is able to demystify something that's mysterious. And in that sense, it will calm the imagination. Um, and so if the book succeeds, I hope, it, I, I hope we are able to take, uh, because it's only by understanding that our imagination can get calmed. Thank Nicholas you. Nicholas Wade, Siddhartha Mukherjee.